Thanks for joining us now for Access Utah. 200 years after the discovery of gold within the United States, we're still fighting about it. If anything, gold has become a more widespread political and economic force today than during much of the last century. For millions, gold is the repository of hope and something eternal, a protector of liberty combined with the promise of wealth. It's an unquestioned safe haven and a connection to a past that's deeply American and beyond American. To millions of others, it's a hopeless artifact, a damaging delusion, and environmental blight. So writes James Ledbetter in his new book, One Nation Under Gold, How One Precious Metal Has Dominated the American Imagination for Four Centuries. James Ledbetter is editor of Inc. Magazine, author or editor of five previous books, and his writing on business and politics has appeared in The New Yorker, The Nation, New York Times, and many other publications. Uh, James Ledbetter, welcome to the program. Thanks. Uh, great to be here. Very interesting uh, book. Um, what... Uh, made you want to write about gold. It, it, it is, as you write, it's a very prescient argument. It's, it's still with us uh, today. Uh, what about gold did you want to uh, express? The, well, the, the inspiration for the book actually came from watching the Republican primary presidential debates in 2012. And I was watching on, on TV, and I realized that there were seven men on stage, six of whom said, if elected president... They would either restore the United States to a gold standard or seriously consider restoring the United States to a gold standard. And uh, it dawned on me that nowhere else on the globe is that debate taking place at that high of a political level. And why is that? Just, just leaving aside whether it's a good idea, leaving aside whether it's a practical idea, what makes that message politically appealing to the voters that they were trying to reach. And we're talking about you know, millions and millions of people. Um, and the more I looked into that question of what a gold standard represents and why people think it's a good idea and our, our deeper and, and historical connections to gold, the better and better the story got. And, and the next thing I knew, it was kind of at the level of having to write a book to explain it. Yeah, this is extraordinary. To, you know, the current president of the United States is a candidate. He, he mused it would be great if we went to the gold standard, right? Ted Cruz was... Yeah. Was talking about Ted it. Cruz support and and Ted Cruz's biggest backer, uh, Robert Mercer, uh, has funded a lot of uh, conferences and material related to return to a gold standard. The Republican Party platform in 2012 and 2016 contains some you know quiet and somewhat vague language about restoring the dollar to a metallic standard. They were clearly talking about gold. Um, I, I don't think it's actually much of a, a, a huge priority for these people. I think it's more a way of signaling to certain voters, but they are saying it, and it is really for the first time in half a century that you get that kind of advocacy at the level of, of the national political party. So I really wanted to unpack that and try to explain it from a historical point of view. And this has been uh, debated uh, throughout our history. Maybe you could just give us a little economic uh Primer, um, what is the gold standard? If we were to go back to the gold sure. standard, what would that be? Sure. Um, so at various points in the United States history, we have had uh, money that is directly defined by gold. That is, you know, there are so many dollars in an ounce of gold or, or, or vice versa. Um, in, in the 19th century, at times we were on a gold and silver standard, at times only a gold standard. There was also money introduced in the 19th century that was not tied to gold at all. Those were the greenbacks issued during the Civil War to help the North pay for uh, its war. 
And then from about 1900 until FDR takes office, we are on sort of a pure gold standard. That is, the, the dollar is defined by a certain amount of, uh, of gold. FDR takes us off that, uh, and we can talk a little bit about that. And then after World War II, the, the, the global standard was hammered out at, at the Bretton Woods Agreement in 1944. This was a town in New Hampshire where the, the great uh, powers met to try and figure out what the, what the world economy would look like after World War II. And that standard you know, prevailed through my early childhood. That was uh, The dollar was defined uh, as, as fully convertible to gold at the rate of $35 an ounce. So in theory, anybody with $35 could go to the United States Treasury and say, give me an ounce of gold. Um, and anybody who had an ounce of gold could go to the United States Treasury and say, give me $35. Every other major currency in the world was tied to the dollar at a fixed rate. You know, five francs to the dollar, 200 yen to the dollar, whatever, whatever it was, um, and could trade only within a very, very narrow range around those, those, um, defined numbers. That system worked pretty well. Um, it, it arguably worked too well in the sense that it helped Western Europe and Japan grow tremendously in the late 40s and 1950s. But with that growth, and, and the global trade, the global economy that it created, you now have all of these dollars outside the United States and dollar-denominated securities such that if they were to be cashed in at that treasury window at the same time, we wouldn't have enough gold. Even though the United States, starting in the 1930s, began to stockpile the largest you know, kind of supply of gold known to human history, it still wasn't enough to be able to back up all those dollars. And so eventually that system um, kind of collapsed under its own weight, and, and Richard Nixon took us off the gold standard in 1971. Since that time, nearly half a century, the dollar is no longer defined by any chunk of metal. The dollar is what's called a floating currency, as are all major currencies in the world today. The dollar is worth kind of what the market thinks it's worth. People trade dollars for other uh, for other commodities and other currencies every day, and uh, they look. You know, the, the the currency markets look at things like the size of government spending, the amount of money in circulation, the total assets that exist in the United States, and they make a judgment. Well, it's worth this much, or it's worth that much. You get you get fluctuations um, in which which are, are are thought to sort of be more healthy for the the economy rather than fixing it. And creating kind of hidden inflation, hidden hidden um, discrepancies in in the value of something because you can't you can't change the value when it's fixed to a, a gold standard. I think most economists think that the, the the method that we have today is superior, and there really is no appetite globally to return to a gold standard. But as we've been discussing, it is politically appealing to millions of Americans. In fact, you write in the book that. Um some politicians, when they had the chance, they had uh, some some backing, Ronald Reagan, for example, and where, where the economic conditions might be more favorable to going the gold standard, didn't choose to do that. It's not maybe yeah. more, more useful as a political symbol to rile up the base than it is uh, as economic policy. Yeah, and we see this. We see this with lots of issues where you know parties on on all sides of of issues kind of dig their heels in and say, well, you know, what we really need to do is X. You know, knowing full well that X is sort of impossible, but it's it's a purist argument, a fundamentalist argument. Um, you know, the the Gold Commission 
of the early 1980s was assembled to look at this question, you know, what should the relationship of gold be to the United States economy? And it was chaired by Donald Reagan, who was Ronald Reagan's uh, Treasury Secretary. Reagan had campaigned on a gold standard, although somewhat quietly, but there were a lot of people around him, including uh, Jack Kemp, who were pushing for a gold standard. Um, but the commission really, I mean, to, to call the commission uh, disorganized is to be very charitable. It was almost a, a kind of circus atmosphere. They couldn't agree on anything. Ron Paul was on this commission. They couldn't agree on historical facts. They couldn't agree on any particular kind of a gold standard that they wanted. There were very few economists that they could find um, who would come in and actually say that it was a good idea. The methodologies for how we would return to a gold standard varied so widely that really no one could make a head nor tail of, of, of what they did. So they, they ended up kind of not doing very much in terms of restoring the, uh, the dollar to a gold standard. However, the Gold Commission was, I think, very effective in terms of raising public awareness about gold, gold as an investment, and it was an important step in restoring the United States as a place that makes gold coins. Remember that during this during this period, uh, the, this Bretton Woods period that we're talking about, basically from, from Roosevelt on, it is actually illegal for most Americans to own gold as an investment. The first thing that FDR did upon taking office was to pass legislation that did two things. It closed every bank in the United States, and it bought up all of the gold held in private hands uh, in an investment form, in, in the form of uh, you know, coins or bullion or what have you. Um, this was an attempt to get a, a grip on the economy, and during this period, a lot of the gold was fleeing the country, and so we were really at risk because we were on the gold standard of running out of the, the gold that was supposed to back up the currency. Um, the banks were, the healthy banks anyway, were restored in a matter of days or weeks, the prohibition against owning gold uh, lasted for 40 years. I don't think that was really anybody's plan, um, but other priorities took, you know, took, 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 got to the head of the line, and, and we ended up with this gold prohibition for, for 40 years. So during that time, the, the U.S. didn't even want to mint commemorative gold coins because it didn't want to send weird signals to the international market. And this gold commission that we're talking about really was an important step to restoring the United States as a place that makes gold coins, you know, for investment and collectors. We now we now mint hundreds of thousands of such coins uh, every year, but we weren't doing that in the 1970s. So that prohibition on uh, private ownership of gold that uh, that stoked uh, sort of a bit of an underground uh, people on the outskirts of yeah. the law, you know, and and that and you say you connected this with uh, the same kind of feeling of paranoia about government interference, government control, connect that up with, with guns, similar feeling in, in, in certain political yeah. circles. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that, you know, and this is the way that, that politics often works, that a policy, a policy designed to do X can have these unintended consequences of Y and Z and, 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 and what have you. Um, the, 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 the FDR prohibition of gold made perfect sense as part of a kind of emergency policy to get a grip on the economy, to let the New Deal programs uh, stimulate the economy. Um, but, but I don't think that as a long-term strategy it made much sense. But in order to build the political will to, to 
restore gold ownership, there was a lot of uh, very uh, heated and sometimes, yeah, unhinged rhetoric around, you know, the government confiscating your gold and they don't like freedom, therefore we're not allowed to own it. And that kind of brews and, and, and percolates for for several decades, and then even after the the law is changed, and in the in the mid seventies, Americans are you know the the right for Americans to own gold as an investment is restored. That kind of rhetorical engine uh, can't stop, and so the next the next step is well, we have to have gold as the basis for our currency, and I I find those arguments to be uh, very different on their merits, um, but the language and the ideology used to sell them is very, very similar. And then there's, a, there's another thing that happened, as with the prohibition against alcohol, when you make it illegal for Americans to own gold, that doesn't necessarily take away people's desire to own gold. They just find other ways to do it. They're, they're, so you get black markets, you get gray markets, you get these people on the fringes of the, of the legal society who, you know, develop all of these scams and sort of tricks about selling gold so that when when the right is restored in the mid-70s, these people are in a position to make a real killing. And while, of course, there were, you know, tons and tons of uh, legitimate people out there selling gold, there were still some of these shady operators and the tricks that they had developed that remained in the marketplace. I mean, some of it is just out-and-out scam. So in one case, there was a company running effectively a pyramid scheme where they said you could buy gold at below market, and they had these ads that touted their vaults of gold. And when when the pyramid you know fell apart after a couple of years, when investigators went into these vaults, they were literally wooden blocks painted with gold paint to look <laughs> like they were gold. I mean, out and out scams. There are far more sophisticated schemes that that pick people's pockets. Um, and uh, and I don't even mean to say that that's necessarily a majority of the gold trade. I doubt that it is, but uh, it, 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 they, I think, are taking advantage of this historical and psychological fascination that Americans have with gold in order to pick people's pockets. And it's something that, you know, while I'm not a financial advisor or an investment advisor, I do caution people, if you're going to invest in physical gold, you really need to do your homework about these types of plans. Uh, just a couple minutes, I want to delve into the fascinating history, and this is a shot all the way through American history. I learned from your book that uh, first discovery of gold in in America was not uh, California, eighteen forty eight. That's uh, right. To talk about that as we go along, but I want to stay in the in the present and the recent past for another couple of minutes. Sure. Uh, interesting connection to Utah. In twenty eleven, Utah yeah. became the first state to alter its definition of legal tender to include gold and silver. Yeah, uh, so this is part of a multi-pronged movement uh, in in the in the sort of early twenty teens to to take up on the state level that which the federal government really shows little, particularly when the when the Democrats were in charge of Congress, uh, showed very little appetite for. Um, and Utah was a, was a, was a place where the where the the efforts were were quite um, quite pronounced and, and in fact successful. Um, I, you know, my, you, you, you live out there, you know more about it than I do, but my impression just from the research that I did was that, uh, this was largely symbolic. That the, the state passed a law saying, you know, gold and silver, uh, can be used as legal, legal tender for transactions in the state of Utah. Fine. 
Uh, however, uh, the, the 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 coins are worth not their they're not their as it were metallurgical value. That is the value of the of the metal that's in them, but the face value that is on them. So if you had a, a, a fifty dollar gold coin from the nineteenth century that you had somehow acquired or was in your family or something like that, you could use it to buy something in Utah, but it's not worth the, you know, the two thousand dollars that the, the, the gold the gold in it is worth. It's worth the fifty dollars that's on it. So you'd be foolish to spend it. So my my impression, but please correct me if I'm wrong and maybe your listeners will, um, is that this really hasn't had much of an impact, but it's meant to send a signal that, you know, here here is a place where um, there there is sort of political support for the idea of, of currency backed by metal. Um, and there were several other states that, that, that passed similar laws shortly thereafter. There were also some states where uh, the legislation came up and the governors vetoed it, even, even Republican governors like Jan Brewer in Arizona. Um, it, it, is a, it is a movement of sorts. It's, it's hard for me to see that it's going to have much impact. And, and I would also say that the, um, the real steam behind this uh, seems to have dissipated somewhat as the price of gold has gone down. One of the things that you observe um, in, in, in the recent period is that there is a greater push for a return to a gold standard when the price of gold is high. Um, and, you know, the cause and effect here can be, can be debated. It's often the case that the, the price of gold is high because the economy is doing really poorly. So it may be the case that people think about returning to a gold standard just because the economy looks bad. Or it may be that somehow people think that, that talking about gold, um, you know, as, as a return to a gold standard will push the price up. And, you know, if they bought it, $1,500 an ounce and you can get people interested in this, you can sell your gold for $2,000 an ounce. It's really hard to know. Uh, but with the, with the recent drop in the, the price of gold relative to its, its highs in, in, the, in the 2010, 2011 period, you don't see quite as much activism uh, on this front. Um, but I am curious to know how, how things look from, from your position in Utah. Well, yeah, I, uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's died down. In fact, I had forgotten this 2011 law until... Yeah. Until, and yeah. So I, I, I think so it's, you're, not, you're, not, you're not out there buying your groceries with gold coins? No, no. In fact, I, I like the quote you quoted a Utah legislator at the time who said, uh, if, you're, if you want a Snickers so much, go down to 7-Eleven and use this coin worth thousands for its, for its base value of 50, you, you are now free to do so under this law. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, I don't, and I don't mean to, to, to demean this, but it is, um, you know, it, it is interesting to me that, it is, that this is deemed to be a useful um, thing for legislators to spend their time on, when in fact, you know, it's really not having or going to have any impact. It's it's sort of purely symbolic. But I suppose that that's up to the voters and that's up to their their chosen chosen legislators. Uh, you know, I, I think. Look, the reality is, to restore the United States to a gold standard would be tremendously impractical, tremendously disruptive to the global economy, and could really, really backfire. Um, again, one of the things that I detail in my book, One Nation Under Gold, is that during these periods when the dollar was backed by gold, there was a fairly constant risk. I mean, every generation or so, and sometimes more often than that, a fairly constant risk 
of running out of the gold. Because if it's convertible to gold, that means you have to give gold to people when they ask for it. And, you know, you get situations like in the 1920s into the early 1930s when the French, for whatever reason, um, have this manic desire to buy up all the world gold. And you have no choice but to sell it to them, because if you don't sell it to them, well, then you're, you're reneging on the standard that you've created. So that's risk number one. Risk number two, closely related, um, we talked a little bit about the Bretton Woods arrangement after World War II that fixed the price at $35 an ounce of gold. Well, if we were to convert tomorrow, clearly the rate would not be $35 an ounce. But what would it be? And who would decide what it would be? Would we use that day's market price? You know, today it would be 1200 something an ounce. Would we take an average over the last three years or five years or 20 years? Would we take the gross domestic product of the United States and divide it by the amount of gold that it currently holds to come up with some kind of, you know, this is, this is, if our economy is worth this much and we have this much gold, then the dollar must be worth that much. There are any number of methodologies we could use, but the final product is, you know, the final price that comes out can vary by orders of magnitude. It could be $500 an ounce or $50,000 an ounce. It kind of matters, you know, which, which number we choose. I mean, just for example, you know, I, I ask people who advocate the gold standard all the time, do you own gold? Yes. What did you pay for it? You know, I paid $1,000 an ounce. How would you feel if the government tomorrow said, you know what, gold is now worth $500 an ounce? You know, it's going to make a lot of people very angry or a lot of people very happy uh, if they decide that it's worth $10,000 an ounce, but that's going to have a counterparty effect on the other side. It's immensely complicated. And again, uh, because we live in a global economy, the price matters. Somewhere, Someone somewhere in the world is going to find a way to sell whatever gold we make available to back up the dollar for more money than they pay to get it from us. So if you know, just using the old the old standard at thirty five dollars an ounce, you had you had moments where the private gold market suddenly you get spiked to thirty seven, forty dollars an ounce, and at that price, people should just buy the gold from the treasury, ship it to wherever, Zurich, London, wherever people are buying the gold, and sell it for thirty nine dollars an ounce. Um, it, it, there's nothing you can do to prevent that and keep a gold standard. And again, I think a lot of people have forgotten this history or haven't really thought it through, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote One Nation Under Gold, to, to make sure that this history um, informs people's politics and whatever policies we end up pursuing in this area. Let's take a break. When we uh, come back, we'll jump into that this fascinating history. We're talking with James Ledbetter. His uh, latest book is One Nation Under Gold, and we'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, my guest, is James Ledbetter, and uh, he is uh, editor at uh, uh, Inc. Magazine, author, co-editor, uh, or editor, rather, of five previous books, and uh, latest books, fascinating books, called One Nation Under Gold. You're welcome to join this conversation at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or to our email, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. James Ledbetter, you write uh, in the book that uh, gold has uh, been a symbol of a struggle for modernity. It represents divisions 
that progress brings between city and farm, technology and tradition, haves and have have nots. Powerful symbol. That that seems to be the you know where it is. Apart from actual money or actual basis for uh, you know for currency or beyond that, it's it is a very powerful symbol. I guess has been since uh, the beginning of time. It has, and I think you know the the qualities that gold has it you know it can't be destroyed it can't by any practical means be created although we can talk about that in a minute uh it it it's relatively scarce uh it 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 is beautiful to behold it has some some very um attractive chemical properties that make it useful in various industrial applications all of that makes sense for why it's been part of religious ceremony and uh, decorative arts uh, through, through the centuries. But in the American experience, I think there's a particular resonance there that's not widely shared by other countries. If you think about the North American continent, it was discovered by Europeans who thought they were sailing to India. Why were they sailing to India? Well, in part because they thought there was going to be a lot of gold there. I think there was a lot of disappointment in North America because it, uh, you know, there, it wasn't immediately found. But in fact, the the, the first known discovery of any quantity of gold uh, in in the the land that is the United States was was not in the 1840s in California, but actually in 1799 in North Carolina, a teenage boy was spearfishing on a Sunday afternoon with his sister. Uh, his parents were in church, and he uh, saw this 16-pound rock that he thought was sort of interesting. He brought it home. His family used it as a doorstop in their barn for three years. Then a, a local jeweler was visiting their house and looked at it and determined that, in fact, it was a big chunk of gold. And when that news got out, you had a kind of mini gold rush in the North Carolina area, uh, hundreds of people digging in the ground and finding that surface gold, and then the beginning of you know, fairly primitive mining techniques. Again, it was the, the, the industry was kind of in its infancy, certainly in this part of the world. Uh, but they did they did find gold there later uh, in Georgia, in northern Georgia, they found some gold, and so you you had a kind of mini gold rush that was not it was not insubstantial. Uh, uh, all of the gold that 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 backed the, the U.S. Mint in Philadelphia in the early part of the 19th century came from North Carolina and this, and this region. Um, and so it goes really very far back into the American experience. But I think once you get the gold mania, the gold rush of the 1840s, that puts the United States on, a, on the map globally in a way that it never had been before. And in the early decades of this nation, we were a, a kind of beleaguered former British colony. We were constantly at war. The War of 1812 uh, was, was quite devastating, and the, the, the war with Mexico in the 1840s, these were, these were uh, difficult ventures, also very expensive. We were kind of broke as a country. Our credit rating was not great. The, the discovery of gold and the massive global movement into California, then later Nevada, Utah, uh, Arizona, that, uh, that really changes for the first time uh, the American place in the world economy. You have, you have, first of all, you have immigrants coming from China, from Latin America, from Europe, 
uh, all in the hopes of getting rich. You have the sudden explosion of San Francisco. San Francisco was a dot on a map that you know wasn't even part of the United States until just before the gold was discovered. Suddenly, it quintuples in population in just a couple of years. The San Francisco Stock Exchange becomes, for a time, larger than the New York Stock Exchange, despite the fact that the New York Stock Exchange had been around for so much longer. So this, this idea that there is wealth to be found just in the ground and can instantaneously make an individual and indeed a nation uh, wealthy is, is, is transformative, and I think we never have really gotten that out of our experience. At the time, the United States being a fairly religious country, it was very common for people to think that, you know, it was God that put the gold and the silver in the ground for Americans to find. God wanted Americans to find this stuff because it was part of his plan that they be, you know, wealthy, prosperous, and, and kind of at the center of the world. We deserve it, right? And I think we've never really gotten, for better and worse, we've never really gotten that idea out of our heads. And so that when we think about gold, all of these kind of unconscious, symbolic powers are, are still there. And, uh, and, I, and I'm, I'm hoping to, to, to make people look at it in a, in, a, in, a, in a cold, rational way as much as possible um, through my book. And this idea, this connection with the gold wealth and as you you know manifest destiny, all these things is inextricably linked. I think still today with with our our ideas, at least some of our ideas of of ourselves as a nation. I, I think so, and and again, you you can understand that that uh, if, to the extent that that represents some kind of lost glory or or a past for which people are nostalgic. By the way. Gold Rush was a mess. You know, most people did not get rich. But people people got rich more from selling things to the people who came than than actually. You know, the, most of the most of the surface gold was tapped out in a year, a year and a half. Uh, and and by your by the time you're into the 1850s, first of all, the supply is is starting to to dwindle a little bit. And second of all, all of that is now you know companies. Uh, rather than individuals, but but nonetheless, that that idea that individuals could go west, dig in the ground, I think that 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 symbolism is still very much with us, and 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 it represents people think a kind of idealized past that we could return to. Some people think if only we would restore the dollar to uh, to a gold basis. But but one of the points of my book is that you can look at many of the worst economic episodes in U.S. history, the 1870s, the 1890s, the 1920s, into the 1930s, we were on the gold standard all through that time, and it didn't prevent any of that. And so this idea of a strong dollar or a dollar that's backed up by something, it sounds good, but actually in practice, it doesn't really change anything in terms of what, what makes economies succeed or fail. Uh, and on top of which, it's incredibly impractical, um, bulky, and, and always at risk of, of depletion. Um, so again, we have to separate out the, the, the very uh, legitimate symbolic power that gold might have from what we want to do as a country and what we need to do for our economy. And it's interesting, uh, you connect this up to our current president, uh, and, and um, one thing you write about in the book is a, a, a consistent strain of populism. And then President Trump uh, you know, describes himself as a populist. So you write that the populists have denounced gold as the primary instrument of economic oppression. Yes, well, so it, it, it sort of changes over time. I mean, one of the fundamental divisions 
in the American uh, economy, in, the, in American society, has always been city versus country, uh, East Coast versus farm and West Coast. These divisions, of course, are very much with us today, whether we call them red state, blue state, or whatever we, whatever we call them, that, that idea is still there, that there's too much wealth and power concentrated in the East, and that the, the people who farm for a living or live in rural areas um, you know, ought to have some instrument of power uh, that they can fight back against that that East Coast concentration in the in the actual populist period, populist with a capital P, which is to say the latter part of the 19th century, the the agitation was against gold and for silver because silver was so plentiful in in places you know kind of west of the Mississippi, and they they felt that uh, that the United States had had kind of poorly defined. The ratio. I mean, this stuff gets technical, but the ratio between gold and silver and their value to the dollar, such that they had gotten a raw deal and they were being um, exploited by the East Coast and its 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 desire, particularly with the Republican Party, for for a gold standard. Uh, and so, very famously, William Jennings Bryan, the populist Democratic candidate of 1896, delivers uh, a spellbinding speech in the Chicago Convention in which he says, you will not crucify mankind on a cross of gold, and this you know, rapturous applause, and he's hoisted up and, and taken out on, on people's shoulders, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, he loses, of course, runs three times and loses uh, each time. But what's remarkable to me is that that populist energy, you know, 50 years later or 80 years later, is still there, but now gold is the instrument of populist revolt. People think it's gold that will somehow restore their economic vitality, their freedom, their liberty, their right to live in the places where they live. And it's the East Coast banking elite and its, you know, global, international, monetary fund connections that are the oppressors. Uh, and so the, the, the populist energy remains the same, but the, but the metallic uh, instrument flips, which I think is fascinating. And again, if you ask why, it, it, all, it all goes back to Roosevelt and the, the, um, the elimination of people's right to own gold. That, that becomes then the kind of repository for people's anger and, um, and revolt. Yeah, it's interesting that it has flipped. <laughs> um, by the way, just before we go to break, I, I don't know if you're familiar with, I'm thinking of um, an opera, a Ballad of Baby Doe, Douglas Moore's uh, opera from the 1950s, which has which has this argument at its core. You don't think of an, an opera being uh, having an argument, uh, a political argument, gold versus silver. William Jennings Bryan makes an appearance in the opera, and the, the protagonist of the of the opera own a silver mine, so they're very much hoping for William Jennings Bryan to be successful. And then the tragedy ensues. Oh, I don't know it. Yeah, I, I don't know it. I'd love to know it. Um, I do write a little bit about the Wizard of Oz, but I think you have to go to a break. Yeah. Uh, y- yes. Uh, so yeah, Ballad of Baby Doe. Uh, yes, we can talk about that. Uh, and I want to pick up this um, this idea. You you made a bit of a reference to alchemy, which has always been, I think, you know, since the beginning yeah. of time, people have have mused, "Hey, can we make gold?" Um, and I want to bring us forward to Bitcoin as well. Uh, more following yep. this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are talking about an interesting new book, One Nation Under Gold. Subtitle is How One Precious Metal Has Dominated the American Imagination for Four Centuries. The author is James Ledbetter. 
and uh, we appreciate you being with us. We have another uh, six or seven minutes in the conversation. You could join us at upraccess at gmail.com. So, uh, James Ledbetter, uh, you made a, a reference, a little asterisk in your tone of voice earlier in the conversation. Yeah. Uh, alchemy. Uh, it, it, is yeah. it possible? People have been trying to make gold so, for centuries. This, I mean, this goes back, you know, many centuries. Uh, the, 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 there were always a group of people who believed that surely it must be possible to turn other substances into gold. And there were people who claimed to have done this. Uh, there were a lot of, you know, kind of secretive methods, and if you paid a lot of money, you could get the right book, and it would teach you how to do it, and most of it was bunk, of course, um, but they were on to something, and in fact, uh, I think one of the most fascinating things that I discovered in, in the course of researching and writing my book, One Nation Under Gold, was a discovery uh, of a program, a top-secret program in, in the 1960s that had, uh, as, as kind of one of its thrusts, uh, the, the, the desire to find gold where no one had found it before. Uh, and this took a few forms. One, they, they, they dispatched hundreds of, of government scientists across the country, and really across the globe, to try and find gold in things like plants. Is there gold in seawater? Is there gold in meteorites that hit the earth? Is there gold in animal brains? Is there gold in deer antlers? Is there gold in the ash that comes from coal plants? I mean, anything that anybody had ever thought maybe there was gold in, they measured it. And the reality is, yes, kind of, there, there are trace amounts of gold in lots of places. The problem, this being the Bretton Woods system still in place, uh, it would cost way more than $35 an ounce to extract the gold um, from these places. So you can get gold out of deer antlers, but not much, um, and you'd spend you know, a ridiculous amount of money doing it. And so it, it sort of backfired. A second plan was to go to places where gold w- was known to be because it had been mined, um, but it was, it, there was probably more gold in the ground, but it was too expensive to, uh, to again, profitably mine at $35 an ounce if you used conventional explosives. But why not use nuclear explosives to blast the gold out and then kind of leach it through, it through a chemical process? And that those experiments got pretty far along. But the, the third one, which was kind of nipped in the bud by, by people who actually knew what they were talking about, was a, was a proposal to use the, the tools of modern science to turn base metals into gold. Classic alchemy. And the alchemists were right. You can do it. Uh, Glenn Seaborg, who was the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission for many years, a very respected scientist, there's an element named after him. He discovered several elements. In 1980, he, he did an experiment in, in Berkeley using very, very thin foil made from bismuth, uh, bombarded it with a proton beam to displace some of the electrons in the bismuth, and what was left over is an isotope of gold, um, but not very much of it, and he estimated at the time that to produce gold by this method would cost approximately one quadrillion dollars per ounce. <laughs> so not super economical, but, but, but scientifically feasible. And I find it fascinating that the, the, the monetary system was so desperate uh, in the 1960s that they, they, they passed this, I say passed, they just enacted this top-secret program um, that was kind of ludicrous on its face 
But it shows you how desperate they were to prop up this system that it seemed like a good idea to put nuclear weapons in the ground or to, to turn base metals into gold. Again, this is part of the, the human kind of bamboozlement and fascination with this metal that leads people to conclusions that are really very questionable. Um, but but th- that was considered a, a sober assignment because they, they, were, they were terrified of running out of gold. We just have uh, one minute left, so maybe the, the one-minute version of a uh, connection between uh, uh, people who advocate for gold standard tend to be, apparently, uh, advocates or interested in, in uh, blockchain currencies uh, such as Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's funny because on the one hand, gold and Bitcoin seem to be completely opposites. Gold is a physical thing you have to dig out of the ground. It's been around for thousands of years. Bitcoin doesn't exist at all in the real world. It's essentially a mathematical abstraction, so they're totally opposite. At the same time, I think there's an overlap in the group that, uh, that, that is, is passionate about gold and the group that's passionate about Bitcoin. In both cases, they derive their value from their scarcity. There's only so much gold that we're ever going to get out of the ground. Uh, there's only so much Bitcoin that can ever be mined because they, they, they defined that as a limit when, when it was invented. Um, they both appeal to people who are skeptical about central banks and skeptical skeptical about uh, paper currency. Um, and there are some experiments out there to use the blockchain technology to create some kind of value that is backed by a certain amount of gold. Are you and I going to be spending this money, you know, when we go, when we buy uh, books on Amazon? I don't think so, uh, but I do think it's an interesting experiment and, and one that bears watching. We'll leave it there. A very interesting book. It's uh, called One Nation Under Gold. The author is James Ledbetter. Uh, James Ledbetter, interesting discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah.